So, um, yeah, as Brandon said, this is our, our last week in this series, The Resurrection According to John. So the last time we get to see this cool hand powder graphic, which I really like. So take a good long look at it, because it'll be gone from next Sunday. It'll still be online, it'll still be on, still be on the web, you'll be able to go and listen in um, there. So we've been doing this series since we started it on Easter Sunday. I'm looking at the last two chapters of John, which are the reports that John includes in his gospel about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. In these last few weeks, we've been looking at the third appearance that Jesus makes to his disciples, as recorded by John, and that's the appearance that Jesus makes with, to his disciples in Galilee. So not in Jerusalem on the day of resurrection, um, in, the, in the upper room where the disciples, if you remember, um, particularly from Luke's gospel, were, were in fear, uh, met together uh, behind locked doors. But now Jesus meets with his disciples in Galilee, in the open air by the Sea of Galilee. And there's a number of things that happen uh, that set the stage for the, the last bit that we'll be looking at tonight. You remember that the disciples are out fishing, some of them at least, not all, 12 on the lake. They've gone back, uh, many of them, to their original trade, uh, at least on this day. And it's from the boat that John, or the, the disciple that Jesus loved, sees a figure standing on the shore and recognizes that figure as Jesus Christ. And then we've seen in the last few weeks what happens. The disciples um, are commanded by Jesus, having caught nothing in their fishing trip, they're commanded to let their nets, put their nets down into the sea on the other side where a miraculous catch of fish is made. Does anyone remember how many fish were in that catch? Bible numbers quiz. 153. 153, remember that one, 153 fish. An interesting number that John gives us there. So the disciples have that miraculous catch of fish. Then they come on shore and they meet with Jesus and he's cooked a breakfast for them. They have fellowship with him. And they set, uh, they begin the long Christian tradition which continues to this day of eating together in Christian fellowship, having table fellowship. We still, still talk about table fellowship as what we enjoy when we have that communion with Christians, when we are united with each other in faith. And then we saw last week, um, Jesus has this, uh, this encounter with Peter, an intense personal encounter with Peter. You can listen to the message uh, online, if you weren't here last week, where he reinstates Peter into uh, ministry. And we're going to read that text in a moment, even though we looked at it last week, because it really sets the, the context to help us understand the text we'll be in tonight. We'll be looking tonight at... Um, well, I've titled the message, um, um, Jesus and the Beloved Disciple, or Jesus and the Beloved Disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved, because um, in the conversation we'll see tonight, Jesus refers to this disciple. So that's where we are in the resurrection according to John. We're also, it's, um, it should be remembered, in, uh, in the period of Easter. We're still in, the, in that period of the church year where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead where we're waiting, as it were, as the church, having celebrated his resurrection on Easter Sunday, we're waiting for him to fulfill his promise that he would send uh, the Spirit to be with us, to empower us, to go out and to make disciples of all nations, to go out into the world, to, to, found, um, to found local bodies of Christians, churches all around the world uh, as part of the one true universal church. And that, of course, is on um, this year, June the fourth is Pentecost. Let's keep looking at the screen behind me. <laughs> I'm 
It's just the picture, right? Yeah, so that's June 4th. So we're in this kind of waiting, but that's also characterized this series. I was speaking with Brandon um, just before we came over here today, asking what, what's kind of the takeaway uh, from this series for us as a church at five congregation here at Calvary Chapel. And I think we were saying that it is the resurrection hope. And I think that's a good thing because these are the resurrection uh, reports uh, that John includes in his gospel. And I think I've seen that, um, um, that light motif throughout the messages of this series that um, as Christians we have resurrection hope because Jesus has risen from the dead. And we'll see that as well tonight in our text, a quiet confidence in the promises of Jesus Christ because of the resurrection. So if you've got your Bibles with you tonight... You might want to open up to John chapter 21. And we'll read from verse 15, uh, and then we'll look at the text from verse 20. So John chapter 21 from verse 15, I'll read in the NIV here. When they had finished eating, so on the shore, the breakfast that had been cooked for them, the fish, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now our text for this evening. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leant back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, What's that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. We just pray to begin this evening. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this blessed gospel of John that has been preserved for us through the ages. We thank you that it is the living word, that it is able to cut through right to the heart of the matter, right down to the deepest thoughts and emotions that each of us carries within our own hearts. It's able to transform those thoughts and emotions, to transform our lives. And we thank you that uh, we can stand here in awe, really, and look back and see For so many centuries, you have preserved this word. Not merely preserved it as in a museum for us to read today and marvel at an ancient text, but you have preserved it by using it throughout all generations to change men and women's hearts so that we stand here or sit here tonight as part of your church, the living 
body of Christ. We pray, therefore, that what you've done in past ages you would do amongst us here tonight, that your word would challenge us and transform us. And we pray this trusting in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this is the scene, um, the, the reinstatement of Peter. And as I say, um, there's a, the message from last week is online. I really would encourage you to, to go back and, and, and listen to that message uh, if you didn't hear it. And this is the context for the, for the text we have here tonight. Because Peter is reinstated by Jesus. Um, that is, he's put back into a place of authority in ministry. Uh, he's, he's reinstated as the rock upon which Jesus will build his church by, by Jesus undoing the, um, undoing the three times that Peter denied him on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Peter is reinstated by being asked, do you really love me? He's reinstated as the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. You'll remember that in Matthew sixteen eighteen, the famous confession of Peter as to who Jesus is. Where Jesus says to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Not who do the crowds say that I am, maybe Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets or John the Baptist come back from the dead, but who do you say that I am? And it's Peter, the natural leader of the disciples, who steps forward and gives the confession, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And you remember what Jesus then says to Peter at that point. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. You didn't get that thought, that, um, that truth out of your own uh, intellect. Um, but blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. That, that is this confession of who Jesus really is, is something that comes from God the Father in heaven. And then Jesus says to him, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Or if we listen to that in the original language of Aramaic, Jesus would say something like this, and I tell you, you are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. That's what Peter's name means. And I suppose if you speak French, you might know that more clearly. Um, Some of the Latin languages still have that in them. Peter means rock. So Peter is this rock, and he's now been reinstated what, the, the, what happened with Peter's denial of Jesus Christ has been put to rights. And yet, importantly here, we see in the text that we have here tonight, Peter's ongoing weakness. Peter's ongoing weakness. That can be really uh, comforting for us because Peter was this rock. He was the chief of the apostles. He was the man whom Jesus chose here in this intimate, um, personal conversation to say, after I am gone, Peter, you're the one. You have to look after my sheep. You have to feed my lambs. You have to take care of them. And, it's, and we, could be, we could think that the person that Jesus chooses for this task is somehow on a level far above us, that we're unable to relate to that person. And I find it comforting, not only comforting, but indeed it, it shows the character of who Jesus is and what his church is like, that he doesn't choose somebody like that. He chooses Peter, who has failed in the past, and, and here, again, shows his ongoing weakness. Why is Peter weak here? Well, we see in our text here that Peter turned from verse 20. So we can imagine the scene this way. They've had breakfast, maybe over here. There's been the fire where they cooked breakfast of the fish, and now Jesus and Peter are kind of having a heart-to-heart, a one-to-one, and they're walking this way. And in some way, what Peter is doing, he's doing literally what Jesus asked him to do. Jesus says to Peter, follow me. 
And that's what Peter is doing. He's following Jesus as they talk. But we see here Peter's weakness. He, he, he falls back here into an old pattern of behavior when he looks around. We remember what Jesus says about ministry in the kingdom of God that anybody who looks around, who, who looks back, is unfit for service in the kingdom of God. That's the word of Jesus ringing in our ears. And Peter at this point turns back. Never a good thing to turn back in the Bible. Bad things happen. You can even turn into salt. So Peter looks back and he shows that he's still thinking about his relationship, not, but not him and Jesus and just merely, merely following Jesus, but his relationship to this other disciple. And he's fallen here into this trap of comparison, comparing himself to others. And it's interesting that Jesus had asked him about that very thing in verse 15, where he said to him, Do you love me, Simon? Simon Peter, by the way. I should explain that if you're not um, fully versed in biblical um, terminology. Um, Peter is a name that Jesus gives to Simon. Okay, Simon. Simon is his name, and then Jesus calls him Peter because he is the rock that Jesus will build his church on. So when Jesus says to him, Simon, do you love me more than these? He's picking up on that element of Peter's nature. And um, so Peter here, is, he's fallen into this trap of comparison. He's comparing himself uh, to others. And I just want to look here at what Jesus says when Peter turns back and asks this question. We can imagine Peter going along and he should be having his eyes on Jesus following him, focusing on what Jesus has to say to him for this all-important task of leading the church. And instead, Peter's mind is wandering. He sees out of the back of, out of the corner of his eye and then he begins to turn around and he thinks, this other guy's following too. What's he doing here? What about him? What about him? And immediately he's distracted from the conversation with Jesus. Let's see what Jesus says here. This is our key verse for tonight. Verse 22. Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you, Peter? You must follow me. There are three, three parts of this, um, this statement that Jesus makes here. They're all important in turn, but let's look at two of them now that relate to this issue of comparison. Firstly, what is that to you, Jesus says to Peter? What's that to you? In other words, stop comparing yourself to this other disciple, to the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's irrelevant to you. It's none of your concern. Stop comparing yourself to this other disciple. And I think there's a real practical implication for us here. Um, in my experience, in my own life, looking into my own heart, I mean, they say that every sermon you preach to, you preach to the church, you should already preach to your own heart. That's an old uh, rule of thumb for preachers, as it goes. And this is one where you really have to look at your own heart. And I think all of us, to some degree or other, struggle with comparison, even within the kingdom of God, even within the church. And no doubt you've had um, experience of this, that churches, other Christian organizations are often hindered greatly by this spirit of comparison and competition that exists within them, which often leads to envy, discontent, and infighting. It often leads to envy, discontent, and infighting. So if we don't check this, like Jesus helps Peter to do here, then Peter begins to envy John because he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
I want to be like him. Why is he the one that Jesus loved? And so immediately the, the, Peter's taken his eye off the task at hand of feeding the lambs, looking after Christ's sheep, and now he's concerned about what's going on with this other disciple. And that makes him discontent. That would make us discontent. Envy, discontent, and infighting. And then we begin to, uh, to fight amongst ourselves for preeminence in the kingdom of God or in the church. And this is, just, this is not an abstract problem that we, could, that we wouldn't really have to deal with, that we could just skim over. This is a deep problem that goes all the way back to the very first days of the church. When we see infighting in the Jerusalem church, there's some, um, there's some, some fighting about um, the, the, you know, the daily... Um, the, the church back, that, back then, they used to distribute food daily to the people who couldn't earn any money, particularly widows. And they began to be fighting over different groups about whose widow is getting preferential treatment. It goes right back to the start. Or those of you familiar with Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, you remember that that is a massive issue that he addresses, this kind of infighting and envy between different factions in the church. And I think, if we're honest, most of us, if we've been to church for a number, for many years, um, will, will have experienced this to some degree or other. And Jesus basically says here to Peter, stop it. Stop comparing yourself to other people. And that is, so there's, this is an, an application for us where we really have to get, get down to fine details and look at our lives to stop this kind of behavior. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying that to Peter. What's that to you? Don't be concerned with that. Jesus is setting the standard, the model for his church. We are not to be people who are known for their infighting, their envy, their competition, their discontent, their comparison. In other words, we're not a political party as Christians, as the Christian church. We're not a political party. And then the application for us is that we have to take Jesus' words here to Peter. We have to take them and apply them to our lives. We have to apply them seriously. I don't want to um, you kind of belabor the point and, like, and bang you over the head with it, but I really think that these kind of things are a big problem, can become a big problem in individual lives and in the Christian church. That we're, that we're, instead of having our eyes together as one body focused on the vision that Jesus has given the church, we're looking sideways thinking, how do I compare with them? Or how do I do with them? Or why, can't, why, why does that person get to stand up front? Or why does that person get to do that? And we get envious and discontent. And we live in an age, and obviously this, again, we don't have to belabor the point. We live in an age of social media. And basically social media has become, let's say for all of us, the place where we, va- where we have ourselves validated to see if we're a decent human being or a decent Christian or a cool person or if we're liked we let ourselves oftentimes be validated over what happens on social media, how many people follow us, like us, click on us, whatever it might be. So we live in a, in a, in a, in a society which has created these extra tools um, of self-validation, which means that comparison becomes all the more uh, an issue. So we have to, we have to apply uh, all the tools that Jesus gives us here to fight this kind of sin because it's this kind of thing that um, hinders, that destroys the mission, the work of the church. When the church becomes inward focused and begins to eat itself up as the individual members are merely engaged in comparison, 
then it forgets its mission to the world. It forgets its mission to the world. And we've seen this again and again in church history. This is a real danger. And it's not a healthy or a joyful place to be. We sang here of God as the true joy giver. And that is true. We want to have our joy in Christ, in God, and not in uh, feeling like we're better than any others in the church. So there's a whole range of things we can do against, uh, against comparison. I think the first thing tonight would just be to, to be aware that this is an issue, and maybe, maybe, um, I'm not claiming any uh, divine inspiration here, but maybe God has revealed that to you now. Yes, this is an issue in my life. I catch myself um, kind of maybe on Facebook looking at other people's lives and comparing myself to them and thinking, wow, they have such a cool life um, and I don't. And instead of that, I could have been sleeping, or praying, and getting ready for the new day to minister where God has placed me. That might be something um, that you fight with or it might be that you're sitting in church and you think, why is that person doing that or up there? And instead of praising God, instead of hearing the word of God, you're actually engaged in unhelpful comparison uh, and envy. And um, I just want to give, yeah, I want to give a personal uh, example there. Um, you guys are church at five people, so you're, list- you're used to listening to Brandon here on a Sunday evening. But recently Brandon uh, preached on a Sunday morning. And I remember some people coming up to me after the Sunday service and were like, wow, that was such an awesome message. That was a really awesome sermon. And I remember that the moment hit me there in my heart where I'm like, I could say, there, there are two options here. I could give in to the spirit of comparison. I'm like, ah, why is Brandon getting all the praise? No one ever says that to me. Or I could say, thank you, God, for that message that's obviously affected people's lives, that's changed their hearts, that God is using to build his church here. And that's the spirit that we need to have for each other here. We can't let ourselves be hindered in the building of Christ's church by a spirit of comparison, but rather we need, our attitude should be that we thank the Lord for the gifts that he's so freely given out of his grace to other people uh, in our fellowship. And we call this um, here at Calvary Chapel um, the, the Jesus mindset. The Jesus mindset. Because... <clears throat> We, we did a series here on Philippians a couple of years back. And I'll just read you this text from Philippians chapter 2. There Paul writes um, to the Christians about this very issue. He says to them, Do nothing, you Christians, out of selfish ambition or in vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Don't you worry about that disciple, Peter. He's not of any concern to you in that sense that you have to compare yourself to him. Value him as above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. We see from the way that Jesus responded here to Peter's question that Peter wasn't having this kind of concern for the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter's concern when he said, what about him, wasn't like, oh, gee, I'm so thankful that you put him in the kingdom. What amazing things are you going to do, Jesus, with that disciple? I just want to praise you for that. That's not what Peter's question was about. We see that from Jesus' answer. What is that to do with you? So we, we, need to, we need here, Paul writes, not be looking to our own interests, but each of us to the interests of the others. 
in your relationships with, another, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's why we call it the Jesus mindset. So that's um, part one. Um, going out from that statement that Jesus makes here, what's that to you? Stop comparing yourself. Secondly, Jesus says here in verse 22, again in John 21, what's that to you? You must follow me. He, Jesus repeats it now, what he's already said to Peter, uh, at least once before. Yep, He says it in verse 19, then Jesus said to Peter, follow me, John 21, 19. Now, uh, Jesus says again to him, you must follow me. And the reason for that slightly different wording is that Jesus actually includes in the original language the personal pronoun, which you don't actually need in the original language. So he's like, he's emphasizing, you, Peter, you follow me. Don't be concerned about him. You do what I've told you to do, which is to follow me. In other words, to you guys, don't worry about that guy or that girl or those guys over there. You, each of you, and we all together, have a task to do. Don't worry about that guy, that girl. Don't, don't be concerned about what they're doing or let your thoughts dwell on them in that sense that you're comparing yourself or worried about them. Stop doing that and fill your mind with, fill your life with what you have been told to do, which is to follow Christ. So we want to differentiate here between a good concern for others versus a, an unhealthy concern with others. Jesus has just told Peter here, um, you need to be feeding my lambs, taking care of my sheep, feeding my sheep. That's a healthy concern for others. I see others as the lambs or the sheep that have been um, purchased by the precious blood of Christ to be Christ's church. And I have the heart of Jesus in me and I want to have concern for them, that they go well, that they have enough to eat, that they have good pasture, good teaching uh, to feed on, that they might grow into a strong and healthy flock. And that when they're down and out, when they're going through difficult times, that I'm there to care for them, to nurse them back to good health. That's the task that especially pastors and elders have as those who've been put in authority over the church, but to, um, to some degree every Christian has to look after the fellow sheep of the flock. That's a healthy concern for others. But that's over against a healthy and unhealthy concern with others where all we're doing all the time is thinking of ourselves in relation to others where we stand over and against them. And Jesus is indicating here if that's how we are, if all we're doing is thinking of ourselves in comparison with others, then we won't be able to follow him. That's what he's saying here. What's that to you? Stop comparing yourself to him. You must follow me. What you need to be doing instead is following me. I, if you're concerned about him, uh, concerned with him to, to, to this degree that, you're, that is indicated by your question, Peter, then you won't be able to follow me. Therefore, I need to say it to you again more strongly, emphasizing what you need to do. You must follow me. And Jesus is saying that as Peter is turning around to look. So he's like, it's almost clicking. I can't click my fingers. 
Otherwise, I could have clicked my fingers now. But Jesus is almost clicking his fingers to say, Peter, turn around. We're going this way. You, you follow me. So we, each of us, following after Peter and all the disciples and the apostles are called to follow Jesus. And that means tending to his sheep, looking after them, uh, but not in a spirit of contention or competition, envy and ambition. So the application here really simply, I, I feel, is to set our focus on following Jesus. And that, that, I mean, for many of us, that will simply be that we make a conscious choice to do this. And we'll no doubt make this choice again and again through the years because we need to hear this message again and again. The simple gospel needs to be heard again and again and again. Martin Luther is famous for saying that he, we need to preach the gospel every week because by the, the time the next Sunday comes around, we've kind of forgotten it again. That's how fickle we are, how quick we are to go back to our old habits. And I think if I look at my own life, that's true for me. If I don't remind myself daily that my primary task here is to follow Jesus, that I receive my, my validation, my value as a human being from being purchased by his blood, that he has died for me, that he has brought me into his church, and that he loves me, not because I'm better than anyone else in the church, then I go back to comparing myself with other people, and I'm sure that for many of us, it's the same here. So whoever, um, so as, um, as a famous writer says here, we must therefore strive to conform our whole lives to Jesus Christ. If we want to follow him, we must strive to conform our whole lives to Jesus. And therefore, this writer goes on to say, the topic of our first meditation or our first study must be the life of Christ. So the application tonight, if you say, yep, I, I really do struggle with this. I want to be fully focused on following after Christ. Then make, make it the first object of your meditation or study tomorrow morning or even tonight when you get home, if you feel that strongly that you need to make a clean cut in your life. Make it the, the study of Jesus Christ's life. I think if we were all more regularly reading the Gospels, uh, we would see the, the change that Jesus would, um, would do in us through that now listen again here to verse 22 and what jesus says here jesus answered peter if i want him the disciple that jesus loved to remain alive until i return what's that to you you must follow me we've looked at those first those two parts now what's that to you and you must follow me and here we see now the third important phrase summed up by those first three simple words if I want. Three words in English, if I want. We see here behind this, um, this simple phrasing of, yeah, of, of John, the authority of Jesus Christ, now complete as the resurrection authority of Jesus Christ, the authority that Jesus has because he has been raised from the dead. Is that clear to us that Jesus has authority because he's been raised from the dead? I know we haven't gone through all of John's gospel here in this little series. We've only gone through the last two chapters. But if you know John's gospel, and I think you would, after all, Church of Five, you know, it's the t kind of the creme de la creme here of uh, Calvary, you know. I think you know John's gospel. You'll know that John's gospel is the one where, that has seven times where Jesus says, I am. He makes these great I am statements. We see Jesus make astounding claims of authority 
about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And compare that now to Matthew 28, the commissioning that Jesus gives to his disciples according to Matthew's take on the resurrection at the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, and these words should be familiar to us also, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth, sorry, in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, therefore I send you, go. All authority in heaven and on earth. This is the resurrection authority that Jesus has. The resurrection authority that's unfolded for us in Acts 17, where uh, Paul says that, Paul says to the Athenians on Mars Hill in Athens, or the, the Areopagus, yeah, the hill of Mars, um, he says, um, God has raised this Jesus from the dead, and because of his resurrection, he's appointed him now to be judge of all the earth. This is the kind of resurrection authority we're talking about. And Jesus speaks here with this easy authority, this natural expectation that things shall be as he says and as he wants, if he wants them to. We can just, it just rolls off Jesus' tongue. If I want this guy to stay alive until I get back, what's that to you? It'll happen. I'm the resurrected Jesus Christ. This is similar um, to Paul's style. I'll just make a little um, parenthesis here on the side, just to tie that in for you. Paul uses this kind of argument in Romans 5 and in Romans 8. Um, we've, got a couple, we've, got a, yeah, we've got half a minute. We can read Romans 5, chapter 10, if you like. Paul makes the argument here. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved, shall we be saved through his life? What Paul, the argument Paul is making here is that the hardest part has already happened. That's Jesus' death, his suffering, and his death, and his resurrection. If God has done all that for us while we were still enemies, then of course he's going to give us everything else. And it's similar to this argument here that Jesus is saying, I've already gone through this, I've already gone through death and suffering on a cross. I've already borne the sins of the world. I've been raised to new life. Do I not now all the more have every authority in heaven and on earth? So Christ is massively victorious and it's as if he's saying, now that I've won this great victory, everything else will fall into place. Everything else will happen as I will, as I desire. I have, I have won the triumph. So, this is, where, this is the takeaway for us. It doesn't matter. It won't matter, Jesus is saying. Whatever happens to you, Peter, or to you, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, whatever happens, the promise will stand. The sheep will be kept safe until I come again, Jesus is saying. It's as if Jesus is saying here, no one is ever deceived in my promises. I never send away any, send away empty any who trust in me. What I promise, I give. What I have said, I will perform, provided you remain faithful in my Lord to the end. I am the rewarder 
of all good men and women, the mighty vindicator of all the faithful. That's the authority, that's the promise that Jesus is referring to here. So we take away from this, it doesn't matter in that sense what happens to Peter or John, for whatever happens, Jesus' promise will stand. Whether John lives 150, 200, 1900 years, 2000 years, it doesn't matter. The important thing is that the promise will stand because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. All that matters for us is that Peter and all the disciples and all of us, that we follow him as we've been called to do. So the application is there. Let's follow him. That's what we've been called to do. And let's not worry about whatever, God, whatever else God might do with this or that person, with this or that church. Let's trust in the promises. Not worry, not in the sense of, I don't care, from like a, from like a sense of uh, another, another outliving of a false sense of comparison. You know, that's, that's, that's something else we can do. Instead of thinking all the time about a certain person and, how, and what they're doing or what gifts they've been given or, and getting caught up that way, we can affect a false sense of indifference. As if, I don't care what they're doing. Whatever. That's not uh, what I mean here by saying it doesn't matter what happens to Peter. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, the, the, the takeaway for us is that we cling to the same promises that Peter and John ultimately clung to. That Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. That Jesus will build his church. That whatever Jesus says will come to pass. That whatever he promises to give, he will give. That he will remain faithful to the end. That's what we need to do. That is a massive application that I want to lay upon each one of you here tonight to cling to the promises of God. And I want to tie that in back now to the series here, The Resurrection According to John. The reason we can cling to these promises is ultimately because of the resurrection. It's because God raised Jesus from the dead and said sin and death and Satan have been defeated once and for all. Death will not have the last word. Sin will not have the last word. Satan will not ultimately prosper. Rather, I have shown you in Jesus Christ that these things have had an end, that they have been conquered and destroyed. That's why we have a future hope. We have the future hope that like Jesus Christ, we will one day rise again from the dead. And so we cling to these promises of God. These are not promises that have been given in a, in a vacuum that he will build his church. The reason these promises have been given is to tie in with the future hope of the resurrection. At the resurrection, it's Jesus' church who will rise again to physical bodies, to eternal new life with Christ on the new hev- in the new heavens and on the new earth. So our second application for tonight is to trust, is to, is to, to rest in, as I believe uh, Peter did here, to rest in the easy, natural authority of Jesus, who says, if I want that, it's going to happen. There is such a great freedom to be found in resting in the authority of Jesus Christ. So rest in that by clinging, holding fast to the promises of God regarding the resurrection and regarding uh, the church and therefore regarding your own life. Those promises come together there for your own life. You are a member of the church, so it's God's promise to you 
that he will build you up. And you belong to him and therefore you also will enjoy resurrection from the dead. And let's finish uh, tonight just by meditating on um, verse 24. Verse 24. Having thought about all these things, um, we read in verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. So the disciple whom Jesus loved finally identifies himself as, I'm the guy actually writing all of this down, telling you about it. I'm testifying to this. He's using the word that is used to to mean to give evidence before a court of law, to swear on oath that something is true. And he continues, the end of verse 24, we know that his testimony, we know that this testimony that I've written down to you, about all these things concerning Jesus, not just the last two chapters that we've read, all these things are true. And so let me close now by reading you something of which we are told here that this testimony is true. In John chapter 10, Jesus gives us this promise. John chapter 10 and verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. We've been talking all about sheep these last two weeks. Peter has been placed over us to to, to look after the sheep. We are those sheep. And now Jesus says about us here, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Just as we read these words, remember the authority with which these words are spoken. I give them, I give these sheep eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is Christ's promise to Peter, to John, to all pastors and elders throughout the ages, to all the sheep throughout the ages. So let's rest, therefore, in the authority of Jesus Christ. Let's stop worrying about what anyone else might be doing in the kingdom of God. Let's do what we've all been called to do, that is to follow him, knowing that this promise of Jesus is over our lives. That nothing can happen to us, that we shall never perish, that we will be with Jesus. Why shall we never perish? Because we have eternal life. Why do we have eternal life? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He conquered death and now resurrected to new life. He can no longer die. Amen.